Friday on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're going to spend the hour today with our partners from the Detroit Journalism Cooperative. Uh, We are looking back this year to look forward. Nearly 50 years after this city and others erupted in violence, the Journalism Cooperative is exploring whether conditions that contributed to that civic unrest have actually changed. We're looking at the Kerner Commission report, which tried to determine why African-Americans in so many cities were rioting during the 1960s. One of the issues, according to the commission, was the justice system itself, the unequal outcomes of justice in America. We're going to explore that this hour, especially look at what is changing and what is not. And of course, we want to hear from you, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Do you think America has made progress meeting out justice in more equal ways? Or do you think America still has an awfully long way to go? You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today, and we will try to work your comments into the conversation. Joining me in the studio now to talk about this work is uh, Lester Graham. He's a reporter at Michigan Radio, and Sandra Swoboda is the special assignments manager here at WDET. Lester and Sandy, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank Thanks. you. Yeah. Um, all right, let's start with you, Lester. Um, talk about what the justice system was like in the late 1960s. 1967, of course, is the year that Detroit experiences uh, a rebellion uh, because, in, uh, explicitly because of unequal justice. I mean, that was the response to unequal justice here. Uh, and, and then talk about what the concerns that the Kerner Commission found were uh, in response to that. Well, a lot of what was happening in Detroit and cities across the, the nation as we had these civil disturbances, part of it was the way they were treated by police. There were concerns about the justice uh, that they would receive as well uh, because there weren't a lot of African-American judges or African-American prosecutors or African-American officers at the time. And so one of the findings of the Kerner Commission, a presidential commission appointed by Lyndon Johnson to look into the civil disper- disturbances, found was, quote, there is a presumption of guilt attached whenever a policeman testifies against a Negro. And that is something that we were concerned about, wondered if there's been any improvement, and we looked into that throughout the uh, year. Here's some stats we came up with. So black people make up about 13% of the nation's population. About a third of those who are incarcerated, and they make up 47% of those who are found to be wrongfully convicted. That's a travesty. Yeah, yeah. Uh, And Sandy, talk about the sort of innocence movement that has emerged uh, that has been part of the system of reform here. Yeah, this is a really interesting movement that's come about. I uh, wrote about it in my previous life at the Metro Times as well. And the innocence movement really, in some ways, not that uh, not that people haven't always been wrongfully convicted, and there are cases where people were exonerated, uh, convictions were overturned you know, years ago, decades ago, centuries ago. But what happened uh, late in the 20th century was the science, the DNA testing that was able to be done on biological evidence in cases where it existed and prove that the person convicted was not the perpetrator. 
And so, I mean, we could talk about that for an hour, but (laughs) one of the things that happened with that, with those cases, people started looking into why the wrongful conviction happened. What were the factors that led to that mistake in the system? And so from that, they came up with the reasons and then were able to apply that in non-DNA cases and other ideas about reforming the system. Yeah. And and one of the things that I think is important to note is innocence is just one sliver of, uh, of course, the, the the question about whether justice is dispensed fairly in this country. But it's a big question. Uh, it is a huge question in our criminal justice system. Uh, you you have uh, you have seen over the last several decades, of course, lots and lots of instances where people who just did not do it were convicted and then sent to prison. And that, but that becomes an even bigger issue, not so much in Michigan, because we do not have the death penalty, but in states that do, it's the ultimate punishment, and it has been shown to be there have been death row exonerations as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, we're talking this hour about the criminal justice system. Is it equal? Is it fair? Do all people who appear before judges, for instance, get the same standard of treatment. Uh, 313-577-1019 is the number to join the conversation. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter, and hashtag Detroit Today will work your comments into the conversation. I'm joined by Lester Graham, a reporter at Michigan Radio, Sandra Swoboda. She's the special assignments manager here at WDET. Uh, We are all part of the Detroit, Detroit Journalism Cooperative, which is looking back this year to look forward 50 years or nearly 50 years after the Kerner Commission report determined uh, that criminal justice was one of the things that uh, that inspired uh, the uprisings and the riots that we saw in the late 1960s in cities in America. What has changed? Uh, is justice more equal? Have we made the kinds of reforms uh, that we should have. Uh, Lester, uh, you guys spent a lot of time talking with uh, some some individuals who are sort of caught in this narrative about equal or unequal justice uh, for this for this project. Yeah, I should know that Sandra and I reported on this together, and uh, there were two brothers, Tynell and Deshaun uh, Reed, who we talked to for about an hour or longer, yeah. and you've talked you've interviewed them previously, and they talked about the experience. Uh, Deshaun uh, and his uncle were convicted of shooting somebody in the back of the head uh, after being in prison for eight years or more. They were finally exonerated, and uh, that that is one of the examples. There are many other. There was no DNA re- uh, evidence in this particular case. It, it was just a matter of what are the facts and how did these two get rushed to an, an unjust sentence. Yeah. Go ahead, Sandy. Uh, yeah, so Deshaun Reed, um, down river, there was a man who was shot in the back of the head while he was driving. And Deshaun and his uncle Marvin were convicted largely on eyewitness testimony of the victim, which is arguably hard to overcome in the court system. But it's also one of the main reasons of wrongful conviction and one of the things that's hardest for a jury to overlook. What the DNA testing has shown and supported these cases where there is no DNA is that eyewitness eyewitness misidentification is a factor in so many cases. There's a very famous case of a woman, I believe from North Carolina, who was raped in her home over a period of several hours. She remembers studying his face because she wanted him convicted someday and she wanted to remember what he looked like and testified several times and identified him in court that it was him. 
Well, it wasn't when the DNA came back. And so the two of them, there's a book called Picking Cotton about them. Ron Cotton was his name. And um, she is an advocate for the innocence movement on saying, if I could misidentify someone, almost everyone could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and we have we have uh, some, some clips to listen to from... Uh, the reads. We correct? do. So um, let me set this up a little bit. Deshaun uh, was, like like Lester said, in prison for eight years. I actually first met him when he was in prison at the Mound Correctional Facility up on Detroit's east side. And and uh, before he was out, there was a series of hearings in Wayne County Circuit Court. But I remember during that time, even several years ago, of you know Deshaun maintaining his innocence. The uh, Innocence Clinic at the University of Michigan Law School had his case. Several students worked on that along with David Moran and Bridget McCormick, who's now with the Michigan Supreme Court. And um, you know Deshaun talked a lot about the time and shortly after he was released about sort of the added burden of being innocent and in prison. So here's what he had to say to us most recently. Y'all don't got on nothing. Everybody in there is butt naked. You know, you got to bend over in front of them. You got to spread them. You got to lift them. You know, that was just so humiliating. Then, you know, you got to get shackled all the way down. And that was the roughest for me. Yeah. Talking there about when you go into prison and the sort of processing. And being transferred because he was sent from one prison to another. They get transferred occasionally. And every time they had to get on the bus, they had to go through this routine. If you can imagine, it's bad enough for anyone but if you've, you're guilty of the crime, I guess it's part of the price you pay. But if you've not done anything wrong and you find yourself in this humiliating position, you can imagine just what's going through your mind. Well, maybe you can't imagine. Yeah. I, I, sure. I mean, it's sure. tough. Well, it's interesting to talk to Deshaun, too, because he'll tell you that in some ways prison saved his life. Now, he would not repeat this experience, but, I, you know, here was a kid living downriver, um, not a ton of education, running running with the wrong crowd, as some will say, um, a little bit of uh, street activity there. But this experience of going to prison when he did not do the crime really changed his life and changed him as a person. So yeah. he'll, he'll tell you being in there it changed him for the better in some ways, but also the experience of it has changed him. Yeah. Uh, and we have a we have a clip of him yep. talking with about his, that as well with his brother Tynell. Yeah. Before he was more sillier, he was more like a, yeah. a jokester. Yeah, and that, that got he don't, taken away. Yeah. That got taken away. Like I, I wish I had that. I wish wish I yeah. still had that. Still had that. You know, yeah. silly is like everything. Just I'm just so uptight now. Like. You know what I'm saying? I was more happy with funny laughing and just I'm more I'm just more uptight now. You know what I'm saying? I mean, uh, having talked with uh, recently with uh, Devante Sanford, mm-hmm. who was also wrongly imprisoned here in Detroit, there's uh, this sort of echo of that lost innocence. I mean, he was sent to prison at 14 for a murder he did not commit is now in his early 20s and out and trying to put his life back together, he talks about that same kind of thing, that that uh, now he is a different person and he cannot recover the person he was at age 14. Well, there is an effort underway uh, in the state legislature. There has been for many, many sessions. A bill has been introduced to provide some compensation. So let me let me set this up a little bit. When with, uh, Again, I don't want to make it sound like nobody's advocating for the release of everyone in prison. Not everyone was wrongfully convicted. There are many guilty people in the system. However, 
um, this does happen, and for the, a variety of reasons that we talked about earlier. So Senator Steve Bita, who is from Warren, has introduced a bill for six sessions now. Six, yeah, since like, 2003. Yes, right. he'd served two ter- three terms in the, in the House, House of Representatives and two in the Senate. And so he has written a bill to make Michigan, like many, many other states across the country, that when people are exonerated for the crimes they are convicted of, to pay them between fifty and $60,000 a year for each year they did in, in these wrongful terms. And it has uh, been in committee. It has been introduced every session. It has never made it out. You know, the other part of that bill is to help them make the transition. I mean, if you were convicted of a crime, you were correctly convicted of a crime, when you go on parole, you get help making the transition back to society. If you were wrongfully convicted, you get to walk out the gates and you're on your own. Yeah. So they they should get some help to transition back to society, just like a parolee would. Uh, here they didn't do anything wrong. They were wrongfully convicted, and they can't get any help to make that transition. And and the pushback there is what? I mean, what is what is the the, the argument for? I don't think anybody's given it a lot of thought. Well, what's happened in past sessions is there have been um, issues of how much this would cost because it would be retroactive in in many cases, and so there would be a few million dollars up front, which is. I would point out a drop in the bucket of the overall state budget. <laughs> uh, it costs what forty, fifty thousand, thirty, thirty. I forget the number. Thirty, thirty thousand, forty thousand dollars a year to incarcerate someone. So yeah. it's slightly more than that. Sure. Um, they're also, you know, timing out their sentence. But there's also procedural. I you know how would this work? What would the standard be? I, uh, what would the finding have to be? And yeah. it's it's there is a procedure in Senator Bita's bill that spells that out. Uh, it's not just the court hearing that exonerates them, uh, that overturns a conviction, but is an exoneration process to make that standard a little more clear. Yeah. You know, and part of the problem here, let's go back to the beginning. Why were they charged? Right. And it's basically a lot of urban centers, Detroit, Flint, some of the others, just don't have the money to prosecute properly. And so there are lots of shortcuts, lots of plea deals. I mean, you know, sometimes you don't see your lawyer until you're about to go into the courtroom in what's called a meet and plead situation. And so you've got these uh, problems with uh, the evidence that's put together. Some of it is not that good, not that strong, but it seems to uphold in court when everybody in the courtroom who's you know prosecuting and defending knows that it, you know something's askew here. But jurors often don't. The other thing is, you know, with our defense system the way it is, every county takes care of itself. Some counties, like Wayne, have a have a defense, a public defender's office. Many counties don't. And so there's a question about are they trained properly to defend someone? Uh, you know, there are also questions about meeting with their clients. A lot of these places don't even have a private space for a lawyer and a client to meet. So they have to meet in the hallway someplace or in a cubicle that can be overheard by other people. There, there are lots of things like that that the, um, the new Michigan Indigent Defense Commission is looking at. They're trying to correct some of these. Uh, they want to bring better standards to the whole state. But, you know... Um, just getting attorneys to do their job, yeah. investigate the case, instead of just doing the meet and plead is, is a big step in the right a, direction. That's an issue we've struggled with in this state, and they struggle with in all kinds of other states as well. We are behind the curve, however, still on, on that question. This this is a step in the right direction. Uh, uh, Governor Snyder asked that this uh, task force be appointed, or, or actually appointed this task force, this Michigan Indigent Defense Commission, uh, they know their work's not over. This is their first step. These are the things they feel like they really need to get done right away. 
Uh, and then they've got many other issues like funding for counties to actually hire lawyers with enough money to make sure they do the proper job. And yeah. experts. In a lot of these cases that you see of wrongful conviction, kind of one of one of the I don't know, I don't want to say new waves of it, but there is there are several cases that have to do with medical testimony. There was a case out of Macomb County of a woman named Julie Bomber who was convicted of uh, shaking a baby and causing uh, damage in that. And the uh, science in that show that's newer coming out was never presented at trial, whatever one of those factors may be in these cases, uh, that's not necessarily the case. You're seeing that with arson cases as well. Testimony that fatal fires were caused by arson being thrown out. So the idea that the defense can hire experts like the prosecution can is something that there's not necessarily funding for. Yeah, there's a lot of junk science out there, a lot of the forensic testing that the methods that are applied, they don't have any real scientific backing. It's just the way they've always done it and everybody's believed it. And it, it may be based on little or nothing. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Lester Graham, reporter at Michigan Radio, Sandra Swoboda, Special Assignments Manager at WDET. Thank you both for being here on Detroit Today. Thanks. Thank you, Stephen. All right, uh, when we come back, we're going to talk about how community policing is changing the criminal justice system. And uh, we're going to want to hear from you. 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. Has the criminal justice system changed sufficiently from the late 1960s? Stay with us on Detroit Today. WDET brings Detroit to you. News that affects you and the music you love. Every day. Every day. On 1019 WDET. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for joining us. As always, WDET and our Detroit Journalism Cooperative Partners are looking back to look forward nearly 50 years after this city and others erupted in violence. The cooperative is exploring whether conditions that contributed to that civic unrest have changed. We are looking at the Kerner Commission report that tried to determine why African-Americans in so many cities were rioting during the 1960s. One of the issues, according to the commission, was the justice system itself, inequity in that justice system. We explore that this hour, especially what has changed and what maybe still needs to change. Uh, give us a call, 313-577-1019 to join the conversation. That's 313-577-1019. What do you think about how the criminal justice system has changed over the last 50 years? Has it changed for the better? Has it changed enough? Uh, also go to the WDT Facebook page. You can put your comments in there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. We'll try to work your comments into the conversation. Joining me now to talk uh, about the policing end of this question uh, are two veterans of uh, community policing here in the metro Detroit area. Uh, Sergeant Baron Brown is the new community engagement officer at the Ferndale Police Department, and Commander Todd Bettison is uh, with the Detroit Police Department. Uh, both of you, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank, Thank you, you, Steve. Yeah, uh, I, I feel like this is the 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 sort of point where policy meets the street, right? You guys 
are the most likely uh, parts of the criminal justice system to interact with ordinary citizens, whether that is uh, for positive uh, reasons or whether it's uh, because uh, they're in trouble or, or, or getting into trouble. Um, uh, I want you both to talk about this idea of community policing. We hear that word used a lot, and I think it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Um, I want you each to sort of define from your perspective what community policing means and what role it plays in this question we're talking about this hour, which is, uh, how do we inject more fairness, more equity into the criminal justice system? Sergeant Brown, I'll start with you. Well, I think that we're, you know, at a base level, we are trying to reintroduce our police officers to our community in a way that that um, has kind of been absent the last 20 years or so since we don't have to live in the city anymore. Um, and so... Our approach has been to make each the police officer and the community, the residents, feel as though they are all on the same team and, you know, striving for the same goal. And that's for everyone to, to live in peace and, and not have to worry about the specter of crime and, and, and all that stuff that affects the quality of life. Yeah. Uh, so when, when I was a kid here in Detroit, we knew the local uh, police officers because there was a mini station across the street from uh, from where I lived, and because those officers were out walking around, uh, they they might be at the playground or the basketball court. They might uh, be at the community center. Um, uh, you know, the patrols looked different, and certainly you you were more likely to come into contact with the officer who patrolled your neighborhood just. Uh, through casual sort of, you know, everyday circumstances. Is that what community policing is supposed to look and feel like? I think at a base level it is. Um, when I started, all the police officers that worked for the city of Ferndale had to live in the city of Ferndale. So you literally had a, a cop that lived every couple blocks. He might be your neighbor, right? We yeah. all, all the kids went to the same school. They played on the same team. We went to the same 7-Eleven to get coffee. You know, you, you had everyday contact with them both as police officers and as neighbors so you know i think i think if we can think about all these high ideals of of these uh, very uh, classic uh, definitions of community policing sure. but i think it goes back to just knowing who your police are knowing their names and and vice versa having yeah. them know the residents as people yeah. you know yeah uh, uh Todd Bettison, uh, Sergeant Bettison, correct? Commander. No. Commander Bettison. That's my fault. <laughs> um, uh, talk about in Detroit uh, this this word community policing, uh, the idea that uh, that uh, we want to do things differently. The, the 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 chief of police here has has talked a lot about uh, what needed to change from his point of view when he got here. Uh, what does that look like on on your end of things? Restoring credibility. Um, approximately three and a half years ago when Chief Craig became chief, as you know, Stephen, looking back, um, reflecting back, we were in a bad place as a city. We were going through a bankruptcy. Um, police morale was low. Um, citizen morale in the city of Detroit was low. I think yeah. everybody morale was low. Um, you know, we had a thing called the virtual precinct, and what that was is where 
at 4 p.m., the precinct doors were closed and you, the citizens weren't allowed to come inside the station. They would approach, pick up a telephone and call in. And officers were forced on 12-hour shifts. It was a lot of cutbacks. So when you think about um, officer morale and out there on the street, if they don't think that the government, the city um, cares about them and your employees are not happy, how do you think they're going to service their customers, which are the citizens of Detroit? Sure. So we remember um, response time being quoted as an hour for emergency-type runs. You, you heard citizens talking about things where we called the police and they showed up the next day. So when Chief Craig got here, the first thing that he had to do was to restore credibility back in the department. We can't talk about community policing until we're delivering the basic services that folks expect. And then it's also taking into account the voice of the customer, the voice of the citizens, the VOC, and then the voice of the officers. So with that being said, the chief had to basically restore basic services and start delivering things and lift officers' morale. And one of the things that Chief Craig always said, cops count and leadership matter, and that when the cops' morale go up, you will see crime go down, and that's what has happened. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and this hour we are talking about the criminal justice system. What has changed in the criminal justice system over the past 50 years since the Kerner Commission report determined that criminal justice, the unequal application of criminal justice in this country was one of the driving forces behind unrest that we saw in cities like Detroit in the late 1960s. You want to join the conversation, talk about what you think has changed with criminal justice over that time? What do you think about criminal justice here in the city of Detroit or in Metro Detroit? 313-577-1019 is the number. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the Facebook page of WDET and put your comments there or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, uh, and we'll work your comments into the conversation. Let's go to Aaron in Detroit. Aaron, welcome hey, to Detroit today. Hey, how are you? Appreciate the uh, topic. I just want to say a, a couple of things. First thing is is that uh, the problem is not one where we could just take it separate from everything else that's going on in the country, everything that's going on with race, and think that we're going to solve that problem. There's too many problems in these elections and other things that are going on are showing us that we have deep-rooted problems that we've been, we've been pretending like don't exist. And in order to solve these problems, we have to acknowledge what the real problems are. Our country has a deep-rooted ratio and separatist-type uh personality that we have to get past some kind of way. I don't know what the solution is, but the first thing we have to do is admit it's there. So I'll say two things, one about principle and one about history, and then I'll take my uh, results off the air. The first thing about principle, in order to get anywhere, you have to at first admit where you are. If you had, if you pretend you're somewhere else, you're going to go in the wrong direction. Pretending like we're in a post-racial society, pretending like we have this equality going on in our, in our system that's really not there is causing us to stay stuck. If you can remember when the Black Panther Party and all that stuff uh, started to happen, it was the same things going on in, in, in our society that's going on now. Police were indiscriminately uh, uh, killing black folks. Uh, black folks felt 
disenfranchised. Uh, the governmental system was not conducive to equality in its laws and its principles, and everybody was tense about it. And that's the same atmosphere we have now, and you're getting the same result, but it's modernized, and so it's even more volatile now because we have such communication and, and, and the world is so small now because of the technology and it's making it even worse. Thank you. Aaron, thank you very much uh, for that uh, for that call and for those thoughts. Uh, Commander Bettison, uh, Sergeant Brown, talk about what he's saying there. Well, what I want to do is I'm going to focus on the city of Detroit because like Chief Craig always says, Detroit is different and one of the things that makes us different is ever since Coleman Young was the mayor back in the day, he ensured that after he was elected, he wanted to make sure that the police department was reflective of the community in which they serve. And to this day, we strive very hard to do that. And we know that the African-American population in the city of Detroit is approximately 85%. Right now, we're sitting at approximately 65% as far as African-Americans who are police officers in our city. And we are aggressively recruiting. And we have various other programs to make it attractive. We um, recruit to the millennials. We have programs where we interact. We do go out as far as community policing to make ourselves a part of the community where we're, where we have officers in uniform that will play basketball pickup games. We just participated in things that the youth like so that we can stay connected. Um, we were with the DPD man running ch man challenge where we had over 8 million views and we got some officers, African-Americans, Hispanics, even some Caucasian officers that participated in the video and we won the challenge and they said, hey, we're cool, we're hip. And it made my job a lot easier when we're out in the community because high school kids recognize that and then they can start to see the other side of the badge because we are people too. Um, we did a concert at Shane Park where um, we had 2,500 kids at that concert. And the chief was out there. We were out there. We partnered with Hot 107.5. So for community policing to work, you have to be a part of the community. We got a PAL program that's the number one PAL program in the country. 13,000 kids are in our PAL program. And sports unite police. It unites all community. It's hard to find folks that really don't like sports, and we just relaunched our Blue Pigs because music brings folks together I as well. Remember the, I yeah. remember the Blue Pigs from when I was a kid, right? And, <laughs> and right now we're working on a version that we're going to call Blue Swag that we'll be launching that it has more relevant music for um, the hip-hop crowd, the yeah. younger folks, the millennials. Yeah, yeah. Sergeant Brown? And, and if I may, in Ferndale, you know, we, we the caller said that acknowledging where you are, and, and we kind of, took a look at ourselves and we acknowledged where we are and that we can do things better. So last year, you know, we had some department wide training where we started talking about things, terms that we had never really heard before as a police department, like procedural justice and implicit bias and, and, and the importance of making sure that our officers base every law enforcement action, not on anything but reasonable suspicion or probable cause. And, you know, we're 41 officers in a gigantic criminal justice system, and we're trying to make that cultural change and think about these things uh, as, as we carry on day to day, you know, out on the street. And it, it, it's a culture shift. It is, it is a, definitely a different way of thinking to, to have to reflect back on, you know, being a little kid and hearing your dad you know, say things that, that you wouldn't say. And did that affect me in this encounter I'm having right now? And, and, um, you know, it's, it's personally for me, it's, it's kind of been interesting to see yeah. that dynamic and, and that different way of thinking about things. Yeah. 
Yeah. Uh, let's go to Lennard here in Detroit. Welcome to Detroit Today. Oh, thank you. Uh-huh. I just want to you know, push the conversation more towards how a group of people can protect themselves if they have the economic status to do so. Like the Jewish community gets a lot of protection because they have the economic status to do so. If black people could actually, I will say this. Um, I heard it once said by Tony Brown that the, you know, the media output, uh, uh, he had our own show back say, long ago. He said black people can't complain. Uh, um, you, you can't uh, complain about a group when you give 100% of your wealth to them. If we had, like, we, there's a bank, I'll, I'll say this and get off the air. There's, there's a black owned bank in Detroit. It's called First Independent. I bet if you walk around the city, Less than ten percent of Detroiters probably know they know that that it exists. All right, uh, thank you very much, Leonard. Uh, I appreciate I appreciate the thoughts there, and and I I can't say I disagree. I mean, I think uh, you know the the economic power uh, that that attends or doesn't attend uh, different populations has ever has everything to do with uh, with criminal justice. And one of the things that we are supposed to be fixing in this country. Of course, is that uh, that that gap? Uh, let's go to Chris, a former Detroiter. Welcome to Detroit today, Chris. Hi, hello. Yep. Uh huh. Go ahead, Chris. Hi. Um, you know, I, I I live in Gross Point right now, and uh-huh. there's a strong police presence in 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 the Gross Point. So anywhere you go, I, I look out my window, and I see police. And I see police. Anywhere I go, I see police, police, police. Now, um, when I, I, I think it, there used to be a, a, it used to be mandatory. It used to be uh, many years ago. Police actually lived in the city that they served in, right. and then they were illegally or buying house or they, they were illegally doing it, but they were buying second homes or. And then living there, and it got to a point where um, they allowed the police to live outside the city. Now, with all this prop, all this abandoned lot, I mean, couldn't we build apartment buildings? And I'm not talking about those raggedy little apartment buildings they're building over there at Alta Road, but some decent, livable apartments or homes that police could live in, and, and, and if they don't want to bring their family there in those bad neighborhoods that live in there, uh, allow the single uh, police uh, officers to live in them, spend some money, build some houses yeah. in those communities, and, and maybe, well, you know, it, it, things will change. Uh, yeah. I think I, criminals, I, I, criminals are less likely, less likely, they're dominating the blocks. Yeah. They're dominating I, Blocks Chris, Chris, I, I appreciate the I appreciate the call. Uh, he, what he's talking about there, of course, is the, the the sort of context in which crime takes root or or continues to take root. I mean, the the idea that uh, that our city has sort of changed as much as it has, and so many people have left. We have a lot of empty space. Uh, does that make community policing tougher because the community looks so different uh, than it did? 30 or 40 years ago? I'll take that question. Um, You know, it's complex. Um, Police officers are just like, you know, anybody else. Um, They have families, 
and they make decisions the same as the rest of the population. So when we're talking about residency, um, of course, Governor Engler, when he was the governor, he got rid of, he implemented the state law to abolish residency. So now officers don't have to live in a certain city. They can choose just like the rest of the population, the rest of workers to live where they, you know, choose best. And we have to talk about some of the things going on in Detroit. And you talk about the school systems. Officers make choices based off of school districts and where they want to send their kids to schools, just like everybody else. I know officers who live in the city, and we have about 40% that still do live in the city of Detroit. And I know officers that don't live in the city. And from what I've seen is they do a fine job regardless. We have some that live in the city that could do better, and we have some that don't live in the city that could do better. The issue is, just like Officer Ken Stiles, well, Captain Ken Stiles now, who lost his life, gave his life for the citizens of this city, he didn't live here. But every day when he reported here for duty, he was on the clock, worked on the east side of Detroit, in one of the more violent areas in this city, and you can talk to countless residents to say that he made a difference. He gave his life. So he gave the ultimate sacrifice for this city, and he didn't live here. Also, also, also Myron Jarrett, yeah. who just lost. Yeah. So we got folks who are coming here, giving their lives, and— We're doing the job. We're doing the job. Even if they don't live here. Right. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, Sergeant Brown. You know, I, I see the—I do see that, that when you live in a city that you police— I think there may be, you know, a measurable amount of of increased effort put forth. I think generally, I I would love to see, and I, I it would not happen because I'm married to a police officer that works in another city, and we both couldn't live in the same city, obviously. But I, you know, I I I miss those days. I miss that that you know you lived in the city, you went home for lunch, you talked to kids that that were walking by when you were walking into your house. And it just, it was a, it was a, a little bit of a different atmosphere, but that doesn't mean that we can't recreate that. And that feeling of community um, with our younger officers that don't live in town um, and have that same kind of feeling. Cause we can do that. And, and we are doing that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, uh... Commander Todd Bettison of the Detroit Police Department and Sergeant Baron Brown, the new community engagement officer at the Ferndale Police Department. Thank you both for being here on Detroit Today. Thank, Thank you, Steve. Pleasure being here. All right. Up next, we're going to talk about uh, what, it, what, what it's like when families are split up by the criminal justice system. Stay with us on Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and thanks for being here. As part of our work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative, WDET is reporting on the issues the Kerner Commission found contributed to social unrest in the late 1960s. Some people call it rioting. Some people call it rebellions. Uh, we saw lots of it, though, in cities like Detroit in the late 1960s. Here to talk about one dynamic in the criminal justice system, which was one of the factors that the Kerner Commission found contributed to that unrest, is when children have a parent who is behind bars, when families are split up 
by the criminal justice system. Here to talk about that issue is WDET community reporter Laura Herberg. Laura, welcome to Detroit Today. Hi, Stephen. Good to be here. Yeah. So you've been working on this story for a while, and and this is a really emotional issue. This is one of those things that that, uh, I feel like there are not easy answers to because of the emotions that are involved. Yes, that's true. And that's part of the reason why I've been working on this story for so long is we decided, you know, that this is something we wanted to look at because it's it's kind of one of the forgotten factors when you look at issues of incarceration is that, you know, there is a child oftentimes behind uh, the person who's incarcerated. And, you know, it's hard to determine an exact number for people who are impacted here in the region. But we know that one in 10 children have experienced having an incarcerated parent in Michigan. And we know that for African-American children, they're roughly nine times more likely to have an incarcerated parent. So that one in 10 number is likely higher here in the Detroit area. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I should say, if you're listening and uh, you are in a family where there is uh, a parent, for instance, in a prison or behind bars in some other way in jail, even awaiting trial, give us a call, 313-577-1019. Tell us about how you manage that, how that affects your family life. Again, 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDT Facebook page, put your comments there, or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Laura, you talked to a number of uh, people who who are wrestling with this issue as well. Yeah, I did. Um, one of the people that I met, uh, her name is Carolyn Witherspoon, and uh, her son actually he has been sentenced to life in prison uh, for homicide and armed robbery. And you know, she takes her son has a, he has a child, and actually his child was born after he was sent to prison. And Carolyn and her husband take their grandchild to to see um, his father in prison about uh, two hours away in St. Louis, Michigan. And um, I talked to her about that experience, and uh, here's what she had to say. The sad part about it, my grandson know the procedures. Take your shoes off, open your mouth, look in your mouth, make sure you don't have anything, stretch your arms out and your legs, he know the procedure. I think that's sad to me. How old is he? He's four now. Wow. A four-year-old knows what the procedure is for being processed into prison. Yeah, yeah. And another thing she said when I was talking to her is they were just driving around. I think this was somewhere in the Detroit area, and they uh, passed. A, it might have been a jail, but it was a building that had barbed wire, a barbed wire fence around it. And it's not actually where uh, her son is serving his time. But the, the, the grandson said, that's where my daddy lives, you know. So even at four years old, this child is 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 aware of what's happening to his father. And, you know, what research are trying to look at now is to see how that plays out as these children get older, how it affects uh, them later in life. Um, but the thing is, this research is pretty new. Um, so, you know, one thing that people wonder is, are these children more likely to become in- incarcerated themselves? And unfortunately, the data on that right now is inconclusive. There's actually been very little research in the U.S. on that. And um, one of the reasons why it's hard to get a definitive answer is because a lot of times these children, who they're 
their parents when they end up incarcerated. These children were exposed to factors before uh, risk factors before their parents were incarcerated. So, uh, you know, maybe a poor education, maybe there was domestic violence in the home. So it's hard to tell if that child ends up being incarcerated, uh, what what exactly the the cause was. But we we do see there's definitely studies show there's been emotional impacts, you know, traumatic stress, uh, separation, anxiety. Um, it's been it's a kind of on par with uh, uh, having parents become divorced. Um, and as a result of those things, you see that children, you know, they don't do as well in school. And um, one of the real concerns then is if this is happening uh, to individuals, uh we see what's happening on a larger scale. And one of the biggest issues here is the economic impact. And so, you know, when you take uh, a a parent who may have been the breadwinner or they may have been paying child support and you take them out of the economic system, now they, they cannot provide for their family. And even they cost their family money. Um, You know, it costs money to uh, visit a lot of these people cost money to make phone calls, uh, collect phone calls for the family. Um, I talked to one woman. Uh, her name is June Walker, and she works at uh, the prison ministry at Hope Community Church um, on Detroit's east side. And this is, uh, this is what June had to say about the work that she does. If you want a person who you've locked in a cage for 20 or 30 years to come out and be human, then you need to keep them connected to their family. That's such a powerful quote. That's such a powerful idea. The the sense that if you put somebody in a prison for 20 to 30 years and expect them to be able to, to function, uh, to rejoin society, you've got to keep them connected with the human beings that they are connected with naturally. Absolutely. And it turns out that that can be very difficult. So uh, June says uh, one of the things she's noticed with the prisoners that she work with, uh, she works with who come out of Wayne County, a lot of times they're sent all the way up to the UP. So if their family members want to visit them, they have to find a way to go all the way up to the UP. And a lot of times that's just not possible. So uh, one of the things that her organization does is they get a group together and they uh, make a trip at least once a year. Um, but there are other things they, they do to try and support these families. They have support groups for loved ones of people who are incarcerated. Um, and they, uh, a lot of churches in the area are involved in something called uh, the Angel Tree Program, uh, where they provide Christmas gifts sure. for children of the incarcerated. And um, also at the prison ministry at Hope Community Church, they work with um, uh, re-entering citizens. So when people are released from prison, they, uh, you know, try and get them basic things like IDs yeah. that they might not right. have. It and- is very difficult. And I think people often don't understand how difficult that can be coming out of prison, reestablishing a normal life. It's just not, you don't just walk back out onto the street. And, yeah. And that. It's hard to get a job without an ID. And then, you know, there's things with ban the box, uh, the idea that you have to say on your job application that, you know, you are a felon. There there are advocates who are trying to change these things so that uh, people who were formerly incarcerated can 
you know, then become contributing members to to our society again. And one of the reasons why that's so important uh, here in Detroit is um, actually Bill McGraw, who works, uh, he's one of our team members on the Detroit Journalism Cooperative. He did an interview um, with uh, Heather Ann Thompson about her new book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971. And in that book, she makes the case uh, that, you know, part of the reason why Detroit had this decade has had this decades long decline. It wasn't just uh, the white flight and uh, industries leaving, but part of it was the aggressive policing of black men yeah. that started the in the mid 1960s that right. led to their incarceration. Yeah. Uh, before we run out of time on the show here, I want to make sure we hear from uh, Serena, who was one of the children you talked to who are caught in this narrative, uh, just the idea of her awareness of what's going on around here really is is quite powerful. Yeah. And just so you know, I met Serena at an event inside a prison facility. Um, It's this program called One Day with God that actually it's kind of like a day camp where the the children get to do all kinds of activities with their fathers um, or mothers. In this case, it was father um, from they do relay races and dancing. And um, it's just a really different experience than than they usually go through. But here here's. Um, Serena, and just to, just before we go to the cut, I had asked her, um, let's see, I had asked her what it's like having her father uh, not be at home. It's like when friends come over and they talk about their dad, it's like hard. Yeah. What do you, what do you tell people when they ask about your dad? I tell them he lives in Lansing. Yeah. So a lot of people don't know that your dad's incarcerated. Yeah. How do you feel like, you know, your dad being here has affected your upbringing? It's hard. It's like hard having one parent in the house. Yeah, again, that awareness, even at her age, of the things that are different about her life and, of course, will affect the way that uh, that she grows up. Yeah, and, and Serena is uh, just, you know, she is beating some of the odds. She's a cheerleader. She has good grades. Um, but, you know, her father is, is is serving out a natural life sentence. And so, um, you know, the research so far will show that, you know, that will have an impact on her for the rest of her life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Laura Herberg, community reporter here at WDET. Thanks very much for being here on Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Yes. Uh, I should also say that the work with the Detroit Journalism Cooperative is made possible in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the Knight Foundation, and the Ford Foundation's Renaissance Journalism Project. That's going to do it for me today. I will be back tomorrow. I hope you will, too. This is 1019 WDET Detroit, Wayne State's public radio station. We'll see you tomorrow.